Welcome to Vibe Talk Awaken. I'm your host, Vibe Queen. On the show, we will get to know artists, entrepreneurs, and coaches living life in their truth after experiencing an awakening. We'll talk about their journey, wisdom, and any tools they've learned along their path. Thank you so much for being here. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is part two of our conversation with Ryan J. Burton. I'm Vibe Queen, your host. And so if you haven't listened to part one, definitely go back and listen to part one. We got into some amazing topics, including his backstory, many layers of unfolding when it comes to awakening. But I'm excited to get into part two. And so I think we should just dive right into the esoteric craziness. And then we left off with different planets and different perspective and alien beings. So I want to talk about magic. And really my question for you is for those that are listening that are curious about magic, I know I've had my own curiosities. Is there really a difference between practicing black magic and I guess white magic? And is there any effects on it? Like as far as your karma, if you practice magic, can you just talk to us about that and and share your opinions on that? Yeah. So very known author. Alistair Crowley, who he was and how his life panned out. There's, there's a lot of contention on it. <laughs> I, I don't even know whether he was really a good guy or not, but he his books were extremely influential and he defined magic as change in accordance with will. So basically to do magic is to produce a specific outcome, to use unseen forces to produce a specific outcome in your life or in reality. So there are ways of doing that from a place of good intentions and a place of bad intentions. So that's really what differentiates white magic and black magic. I'm not like an absolute expert on this. I know much more um, about Buddhism and, and meditation than I do about this specific subject, but I do have experience in it as a scryer and as someone who's actually done magic. Yeah. The intention in my opinion is what, what defines it as what we consider black or what we consider white. And then also the nature of the beings that are being used in the magic. And there's lines that are blurred too, because there's some magicians that, for example, they'll have, there'll be someone with a problem with an entity, with a demon, and they'll come to this uh, magician. And for whatever reason, the magician's conjurations are not able to exercise that entity. But if the magician uses a demon, the demon because it's a bigger, more powerful entity in the demonic hierarchy is able to make that entity leave. So not everything's black and white in magic. And I think a lot of people, they look at things at the surface and they can, we can all make assumptions. That's a common, that's a common notion for sure. There's people who do magic for good and there's people who do magic for bad. And there's even magicians that I've listened to and read from that curse other magicians. So to me and my magician friend, Paul fears like that, just, that just doesn't make sense to us. That sounds like a very petty and immature thing that a person would do. So when it comes to magic, I see magic as a way to produce certain results in your life, but by using specific forces. So like when you're doing manifestation, you're using basically the consciousness that is related, just consciousness. You're using consciousness to manifest something. You're using the field. Mm -hmm. Um, you're using intention when it comes to magic you're usually doing a specific ritual uh, either Mm -hmm. related to an entity or a spirit or an angel or a demon or otherwise to produce a certain result so 
the difference between manifestation and, and that is when you're manifesting, you're seeing something as if you already have it. And that's what's drawing it into your reality. That's what's changing the, basically causing that to begin to manifest in your life. But with magic, it's like you're asking an unseen person or an unseen being to bring you a result, which is quite different from manifestation or to produce a result. And that is different than manifestations. They go hand in hand, sure, because there's the, the, the result is some kind of change, but how that change goes about depends on what you're doing. If you're using a specific angel or you're, you're using a specific, for example, yeah, you're using a specific entity or a specific incantation that's connected to. Yeah, so I would say magic is also, there's a point in the development of a magician where they basically become the magic. So the change that they've been producing, the results that they've been achieving through their work, they eventually become the vessel for those energies, good or bad. So they've been working with angels and they've been doing that. They basically become a vessel for that angelic energy. And that's why magicians are, at least in ancient cultures, were held as priests and held in very high regard because they're literally able to command the forces of nature and command divinity. The same thing applies for the reverse on the black, on the dark side of things. The more you work with negative entities and beings that are not angelic, right? Mm -hmm. You gradually, that gradually begin, you gradually begin to become a vessel for that. And there's so many different forms of magic. There's ways to, there's like chaos magic, for example, and that's a way to use the subconscious and language that the subconscious recognizes to manifest things. There's, and there's magic within Tantra and all of that. But I would say the main, the main lesson that I learned from magic is although magic can produce a specific result and a specific change. I don't necessarily see it as a path to awakening. I don't necessarily see it as a path to realization. It can be, but I think at least in the grimoire tradition, in a lot of ways it's presented, it's, it's a means to evolve, but it's also a means to get things to basically change reality and control the forces of nature. The interesting thing about Aleister Crowley and about people in that line of magic was that they had a notion about, it's a specific experience called knowledge and conversation of the Holy guardian angel. You have an experience at some point in your magical development. If you do a certain ritual, it's called a Bremlin, the sacred magic of a Bremlin. There's versions for it in Greek, but it's basically also how to, it's basically how to meet your principal guardian spirit, guardian angel. And there's a whole process of unfolding that can happen that's related to awakening and realization as a result of that. And that was something that Crowley talked about, like discovering your true will. And he also had, he also translated or shared some of the first Buddhist texts, Theravada Buddhist texts. So he definitely had a more yogic spiritual orientation on magic, but a lot of people do magic just to get stuff. It's not like a path to gnosis or a path to realization. So I would say those are differences. You could definitely use magic. You can use magic on your vehicle of realization, but I feel that the aims, the aims are a bit different. Like for example, Buddhism and Vedanta, they go straight to the point. Like the point of that whole path is realization. And with magic, it's a lot more nuanced than that. You have so many different traditions and so many methods and so many things you can do 
in that arena and they're not necessarily related to realizing the origin and nature of life. Interesting. I have an observation I'm, I'm excited to share with you towards the end of this podcast, so hopefully I won't forget it. But what I'm gathering from what you're sharing is that psychedelics, hallucinogens, magic, manifestation, all of these things are tools, basically. Yeah. So they may not necessarily be things that will lead to awakening. You can use them for what they are, as long as you don't get attached to them and look at them as an identity and get caught up in them, they can be used as tools. And I think perhaps, correct me if I'm wrong, sometimes on the path, if you will, people get stuck in that level, whether it's they get stuck in just manifesting and they get stuck there or they get stuck in the magic realm or they get stuck in the hallucinogen and drug use. And it seems like you have experience in all of those chapters in your life. And yeah, Buddhism that's, that's true. is the one that kind of stuck because it's the one to awakening. So that's very interesting. So that's just what I'm observing. But when it comes to magic, is there any kind of karma connection when you dabble with that? Uh, I'm curious if there's any kind of connection in your experience. There always is, whether it's magic or anything, really, if it's connected to, if it's connected to spirits and karma, Karma can mean many things, but karma, the word itself means action. So mm -hmm. there's specific results for action. If I tend to, for example, hang out with a specific kind of people, if I, let's just say I hang out with criminals, I'm generating the karma of being the person who hangs out with criminals. Hmm. Like there are the, the seeds for being the, for continuing to be the person that hangs out with criminals in this life and in future lives. So if you do magic, oftentimes if you do magic in this life, it's because you've done magic in a past life. And this life is a continuation of what you've done previously. And the magic that you do in this life will probably be a continuation and related to the magic that you do in, in a future life. Or if you want to look at it from a more cosmic perspective, there's no time. These are all parallel existences. Either way, the karma is there and the seeds are there. Yeah, it depends on the agreements that you make with the spirits and with the entities. That's really where the, I think karma in the sense that you are thinking of it is related to. So the way that, and you usually don't get so much of that. You don't like make packs, you make agreements with angels. I guess you ask them for stuff, but it's not the same thing as like making a pact with a negative entity or with a demon because with an angel is considered a superior being and they really, they help you because you've asked them to, but there's no binding contract. You can't. You can't, it, just, it can help you or not. A deva can help you or not, but a demon when it's earthbound and it's basically been subjugated to do what it's right. supposed to do according to these books, you make an agreement with it. So there's demons, there's negative beings in a specific hierarchy, and there's a whole way that that entire world and um, that entire reality functions that is, in, that is completely unknown to us. There are definitely commitments, unknown commitments, unknown connections, things that you can do as a magician or as a practitioner that will lead to specific results in the future or at the end of your life or in another life that you don't even know about. Sure. But yeah. you do that with any, you do that with everything. So even if you go to a Hindu ashram and you do the Ganesh mantra a hundred, you do the Ganesh mantra 250,000 times or 500,000 times or however much you're building, you're also building a karmic relationship and an energetic relationship with that being. So it's not necessarily, and, and karma isn't, karma has uh, negative fruition and positive fruition and even neutral. So 
the results for the things that you do can vary depending on the intention and then depending on the actual, the actual situation. Like, so for example, if, if a magician used a demon to save a person's life, to save a person's life, because that, that there was a demon that was possessing that person and the demon wouldn't go away. It was ruining the person's life. The magician says, the only way I could fix this is if I summon a king and the king will banish that entity. So one hand, he may have positive, a positive karma for saving that person's life. On the other hand, he may have a negative karma because now the entity says, you used me to fix this situation. And now you owe me because right. I, I saved that person's life because you commanded me to do it. So right. these relationships are complex. Wow. Yeah. Feels like a sci-fi movie. It's crazy. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Real life is more interesting. That's so fascinating. So fascinating. Wow. Do you have any regrets with your time in magic? I'm very curious to know. No, <laughs> I don't. Because I, I learned a lot from it. And I think it was a necessary part of my development. And I had to go through it. But I will share this story. So I had done this evocation in the desert and nothing happened, but there was a kind of change in my perception that definitely started to occur. Like in my mind's eye, I was seeing a lot of fire and the entity that I was working with wasn't particularly nasty or particularly evil or anything, but still classified as like an earthbound demon pretty much. And yeah. For whatever reason, the result didn't, it didn't result in a physical appearance. Like the, if you do an evocation correctly, you use the right tools, you do things according to the book, you do it at the right time, the spirit appears like as real as this conversation is. So even if you were a materialist and you didn't believe in this stuff, if you did it every single time, seven days in a row, yeah, there's a magician that Paul and I have have followed his name Steven Skinner. And he was saying, you could still, if you practice magic and evocation, you could still be an atheist, but you can't be a materialist. Because when that entity appears, and it will appear. Oh my uh, gosh. Everything change. Yeah, your whole. Wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, uh, oftentimes magicians, they are, you know, they could still be an atheist, but if they've done evocation to that level, very rarely will they remain a materialist. Wow. I'm going to give a disclaimer right now for those listening. Anybody that is going to go like duck, go Google this real quick. I take no responsibility <laughs> if you see anything after Googling what an evocation is and the details on how to do that. So I'm just going to throw that in there. Well, well I'll explain what happens. <laughs> Notice that there was this kind of, you know, this kind of fire psychic impression that was pretty much becoming very constant. And this is inference, so I haven't seen like the karmic law or seen through the fabric of space and time to see if this is actually the case. I'm just saying, you know, what my take on it is. Could be wrong, but this is what, this is actually what, what arose. Mm -hmm. So I was in Thailand like two or three months later after this working. And while I was in Thailand, I was doing a two week meditation retreat and over the years, I've used this, I've used, I used two, basically two mantras. There's a mantra from the Dhammakaya technique called Sama Arahang, which is basic, which Sama means right, Arahang means enlightened one. So it's, you're basically calling the Buddha nature within when you do that, when you do that mantra. The other mantra I use is called the Junti mantra, which is a mantra from Mahayana Buddhism. It's also used in Tibet in some places, but 
basically it's like a Buddha Bodhisattva that's related to awakening and wisdom. And there's also a wish fulfilling element to that mantra. So you think you can think of what you want and recite the mantra and it'll come to fruition. It's like a manifestation tool and some Arahang does a similar thing, but this mantra has a specific function of banishing, which I didn't know that it has a banishing function. And for whatever reason, I wasn't even doing the mantra on the retreat, but I've done a lot of that mantra previously. Mm-hmm. And in the meditation retreat, I don't know, it was like day 10 on, on the 14 day retreat or something. And I'm just meditating, I'm meditating at the center of the body, meditating brightness, whatever. And then suddenly, oh, there was this mental image of this nun with her back turned to me, like a Mahayana type nun who wears like brown room and her back was turned in my mind's eye. And I don't pay attention to stuff that arises in the mind's eye when I meditate. I really don't. It's just the meditation object or presence awareness. I'm not paying attention to stuff. I'm not picking up stuff. No, none of that happens. Just meditating. But this image was not leaving. We always like burned into my consciousness. And I was like, okay, just trying to meditate. It was just still there. (laughs) So I directed my attention at it and the person turned around and in my mind's eye, its eyes were just like shining light. I couldn't even see her eyes. And when, as soon as she turned, it was like, you, this bomb went off inside my body, like vibrations everywhere. Like a literal chi energy explosion through every single cell in my body, tons of light and just vibrations and vibrations. It lasted like five minutes. Wow. And as soon as the explosion happened, she said the words, dispel the evil one. And then the name, not the name of the entity that I was working with, but the name of its superior. So what I suspect was that the entity's superior was actually attempting to attract me as a magician to begin to work with it. And as soon as that had happened, I, after that experience, I basically, and I've done some scrying here and there, but I've retired from it. I haven't, I basically haven't, haven't done it since. And I'm not particularly interested in it. I still help. I still do stuff with Paul occasionally, but it's very different before then I was very like, yeah, I want to make something physically appear and all, and, and that whole thing. And yeah, yeah, it's just not, did it scare you? What made you, what turned you off from it? No, it didn't scare me. It was just like whatever impulse or whatever drive was there to really deeply practice magic and explore it further in that moment when that nun did that or appeared just gone that, gone yeah just interesting gone. exactly wow. and do you think that was on purpose that was just part of your unfolding your path to steer you to where you are now i don't know for sure because i i'm not omniscient you could experience omniscience but still not particularly know all things and in all times and all places so i don't really know but as far as my experiences with it and what I learned and what it taught me, it was worth my time for sure. And those months I had with Paul, those are some of the, those are some of the most fun, incredible months of my life. We were doing magic like two, three times a week, summoning angels, just like, it was incredible. And especially the work with the angels, like you could really feel the sanctity of these beings when you call on them and when they enter the room and it was very powerful. I think magic when done as path can be very rewarding as opposed to magic done as a way to get something. So. Wow. Okay. 
And so I guess my next question to you is if it's done as path, what does that look like? And what advice would you give for someone who is seeking that as a path? When it's, when it's done as path, I feel that meditation and yoga are, are usually involved. It's like the practice itself is always ask is generally oftentimes asking for something, but at some point, especially if you do the Holy guardian angel work, there's a whole thing that opens up as a result of that relationship with that being. And Robert Monroe had his own version of this, but he didn't practice magic. He's the author of the journeys trilogy and the founder of the Monroe Institute. Anyone who is interested in out of body experiences or any of the things I've said, read the journeys trilogy, freaking incredible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> out of body, far journeys, ultimate journeys. Some of the best, probably like up there with the five best books that I've ever read. Okay. So just phenomenal stuff. In Far Journeys, he talks about this relationship he has with a non-human intelligence out of body. And the intelligence really provided quite a bit of training and a lot of, it was a very rich relationship that he was able to learn and elevate so much through. It's like having a personal relationship with a master that you are able to access non-physically. Non and even physically, if you do this from the magical route, the angel, the being appears in the room. That I would say is taking magic as path. When you use it, when it's geared towards the elevation of your consciousness or working up the Kabbalistic tree of life at the top of the tree of life is Ein soft, the, em the emptiness, the nothingness, the unborn. So when you approach magic like that as a way to perfect and elevate the spirit, which is, I would say most likely it's, it's true purpose, according to Levi and, and Blavatsky then it ends up being path, but how that plays into, into Wicca or witchcraft or some of the things that, that are more commonly practiced, like even evocation, if it's not directly geared at that ultimate, that absolute reality, then I, I, I don't consider it path. Gotcha. And would you consider belief or faith to be necessary in order for it to work? Cause I know what you said about doing the seven day evocation, you can be an atheist, it'll appear, but is that kind of a blanket statement for magic in, in general, or is that just for that? Because I know just even before I had my, for lack of better words, awakening, I've always heard with voodoo, for example, it doesn't work unless you believe in it. That's just what I've heard in Hollywood movies. It doesn't work unless you believe. Is that true? Or is that no. just BS? Can you elaborate on that? You know what I'm talking about? So is there think, an element of belief involved, even when you like do like an exorcism and all of those things, you see those things in movies. Is there any truth in that? Yeah, I would say there's, I would say there's truth in it, but as far as belief is concerned, look at it like this. If a doctor gives you a placebo and you believe it's medicine, you're going to have an effect from that drug or from that placebo. So there's a utility for having belief and definitely having faith is helpful in, in anything, in any spiritual endeavor. It, it's what, it's what can keep you going and it's a way to connect. There's a difference between belief and faith. You know, belief is actually in a specific, usually related to a specific construct or a specific idea, right? Faith is more, I, I would consider faith more like an energy, more like a state of mind of connectedness and receptivity and expectation. So when you manifest something, you have to have faith that it's going to come to fruition. That's expectancy. So when you have belief, it's usually, belief is usually related to conviction, but you're like very certain that's that specific concept is true or 
that specific person is the way they are. Faith is, I feel that faith is definitely has a more energetic, more energetic and spiritual aspect to it in a way. Yeah. When you do magic and you believe it's going to work, of course, it's just like when you take medicine and you believe it's going to work, expectancy produces results. So it's more about the expectancy, but that being the case, you can still, it's possible to still do a ritual and not really think it's going to work. And yeah, it can work. It can end up producing results that you didn't expect. And it's also this, the inverse is the same. You could have very deep expectancy in a specific ritual to work, specific evocation to produce its result. And it doesn't produce its result. It just depends on the situation and it depends on the person. It depends on the skill of the magician. Like for some people, they'll do, they'll summon an angel and they'll ask for something and a master just materializes it in their consciousness and then it just appears. So there's differences in the ways that, that these things work, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that faith and belief do play an important role. They're just not, they're not absolutely necessary. I don't. I've seen so many rituals worked like just on a whim. Okay. Let's see if it works. Mm -hmm. Be open to it working and then it can, it works. I think I get it. I think what you're saying, you're open to it working. That's what just clicked for me. You're open to it working faith and belief. All of it, the common denominator is that you are on the frequency of it being able to work. And so yeah. energetically you're a match. And so to go back to the law of attraction, it can appear because you're energetically able to attract it. And so that master is just consciously on that frequency, which is why it's able to materialize it so quickly because it's more evolved energetically. And so I think if your belief system and faith or any of those things, if you're just not energetically, your frequency is just not on that level to see it. So perhaps if you're doing that ritual or whatever, that being may actually very well be there, but perhaps, I don't know if you call it your third eye, whatever, is just not able to see it, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. I'm just talking. I have no yeah, idea if I'm right. Is definitely. that a possibility? And, and in the, at least in, in magic, what you described is very true for angels. People, for angels to appear to a person, usually it's because they have clairvoyance and they're actually able to see spirits or they temporarily have a clairvoyant activation and they're able to perceive the spirit or the angel in the room. But this rule seems to be different when it comes to earthbound spirits or when it comes to demons, at least. So I've heard apparently that the entities, the spirits, demonic are, are right there and they can appear to you. It's not, it has nothing to do with uh, clairvoyance. Like they can actually materialize in front of a person, but that doesn't seem to be the case with angels, I usually hear that when it comes to angels, you need to have the gift or have developed scrying or developed clairvoyance. But I've heard from other people that if they just did the ritual enough times for the earthbound spirit, for the demon, it appeared Thanks. without being clairvoyant. So I have a question with your perspective on what's happening currently in the world, especially in 2020, when you see the riots and a lot of chaos happening. And I know you mentioned chaos magic before. I don't know if that's what that is, but do you feel that with the war on our conscious and like this whole spiritual war, you've been here, you hear that a lot in the spiritual community. Can you describe what's going on and how magic perhaps is at play? Like I've had my own kind of 
inkling with what I see with the whole, I can't breathe and people protesting and they're saying, they have it on their shirts, they have it on their mask. And to me, and I'm no magician and no expert in this, but just my common sense, my logical thinking, I'm like, okay, if you're marching and saying, I can't breathe over and over again, or you're even wearing that and you're seeing that even on a subconscious level, you're literally telling yourself you can't breathe. I don't think that's a very positive message to tell yourself or a positive reinforcement. And this is not even me necessarily talking about the issue of pro-mask or against mask, but just what you're seeing and taking in is just not a, a positive image. So is that a form of magic in a way? Or can you just talk about that in your opinion? Yeah, I think how magic can manifest or what we can see as magic our reality or instances of it or for example when there's when there's very large events there tends to be specific imagery specific cult themes that are that we have a lot of attention directed at so for example i believe in the 2012 olympics there was this there's this blow up massive blow up doll of a grim reaper and there was like a baby in a carriage and it was really weird and like even my friend's parents who watched i don't even remember that like, okay i was like yeah that's a really that's a lot of weird that is weird <laughs> weird, like weird the open imagery. ceremony or something no it was just like a part of the halftime show and whatever okay yeah so we can see examples of harvesting attention on mass scale so i think that i think the situation with the world that and everything that's happening is so there's really like an unfolding and an unveiling that's happening and that's what's and that's what's creating all of the chaos no one knows what the heck is true anymore right. you know yeah, <laughs> no, one, no, no one knows, no one knows whose reality is the correct one yeah very true like you, you for one specific scientific fact or one specific position you have people on both sides of the argument that have data to support their argument yeah. So it's very difficult to determine what is actually fact, what is actually true, because there's so much information. There's so much conflicting data. There's so many positions and there's special interests on both sides of almost every debate. Mm -hmm. So that, that creates a, an issue of like information overload. And we mm -hmm. end up tending to really seek the answers in the material dimension. And we try to understand things the best that we can based on our human knowledge and our human constructs. But the thing about that is that human knowledge is continuously changing and human constructs are absolutely victim to fallacy, absolutely prone to fallacy. So even things that I think are true, I don't put like as much weight in them as the level of truth that is held in having gone out of body so many times. That's like a direct experience, right? right? Yeah. There are things that we know conceptually, and then there are things that we know by experience. Right. Uh, if you've gone out of body a hundred times and you've observed animals astral project, you don't really have any doubt about right. that specific facet of our reality. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the chaos that is happening, I think that it's just the information overload. It's a, it's an information war. There's people who want humanity to move in one specific direction. There's people that don't, that are not for that specific movement and as time moves forward we continuously see this push towards centralization towards centralized government towards centralized financing towards a basically top-down structure and it's going and it's being presented as socialism it's being presented as the solution for everybody but 
I'm not certain if, that, if that's actually the right solution. I'm not certain if giving everything to everyone for free is what's going to be most beneficial for our society in the long run. I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert when it comes to all of that. But it seems to me that taking money from people who earned it and redistributing it to everyone else is theft. That, right. that's, that's not, it's one thing if the conditions were set up for that money to be given to the poor in other ways, but to actually take money from the 1% by force, using guns, using laws, using punishment, right. and redistributing it to other people. To me, there's something anti-divine about that. that doesn't seem to be coming from a place of freedom. And of course, the other side of the argument, they say, oh, they cheated and stole and they they eliminated competition and they raped the people and they took from them and that's why they're the 1%. It's also true that the reason they're the 1% is because they provide a service and a product to the free market that has allowed them to become what they've become. So not everything's black and white. And I think that these kinds of extreme solutions or these extreme proposals to just take all the people who are the richest and literally just take from them by force. I don't see, you have to, we have to consider what is the outcome of that? Right. When you take the most powerful people in a country in a, in the free market and you pass legislation to take from them and you essentially set up a state that is allowed to take by force from anyone who's next. How do that, what is done to one group will not be done to another group. How do, how are we able to navigate what the extents of the power of the state are? Once you open the door and you say, yeah, tax the wealthy, take, take 50% of everything they have. You have, if you need to, because a lot of them don't make, don't have income, you need to take from the shareholders or you need to, you need to go in a roundabout way to get that money, do it. And when we start to step in that direction, I feel that it's too much power coming from one place. And, and in a lot of these countries, we've seen issues with centralized power, like World Trade Organization giving lots of money, giving huge loans to the Mediterranean and into Central and South America. And then the countries are not able, are not able to pay those loans back and the nations go bankrupt and they're in further debt. So I'm not an expert on all those things. There are other people who are much more educated on all of that. But um, just from my point of view, I think that centralized power is dangerous, even with good intentions, even in a socialist or communist uprising, even if the most spiritually enlightened people were to initiate it and create this communist utopia, once the power is centralized in a specific group or in a specific, to a specific group of people, who's, where's the certainty that's where the power is going to stay? Where's the certainty that those people's children or the progenitor or the, the next generation of the, of that, of the people who run that system are going to be as just as the people who initiated it. Right. And is, and is that going to be a good thing for society? At least with the free, at least with the free market, there's some decentralization. Sure. You get these big companies that pass legislation to protect them, but in general, there's a reason that people come to America. There's a reason that if you're from India and you're from China, you want to come here. There's a reason that you're from the, you, you're from these socialist countries and you come to America and you're like, oh, wow, this is such, a, such an incredible place. So sure, this country's not perfect. It has issues. There's all kinds of problems here. There's a culture war. There's crony capitalism. The banks got bailed out in 2008. All this stuff. 
war wars every decade so i don't give the west a break for the things that that it's done and what it's contributed to the world stage but i also do give credit to america for the things that it has done and the opportunities it's provided look at where this huge like spiritual awakening is happening Mm-hmm. It's really picked up momentum and and gained so much traction. It's particularly in the new age, like here in the late '80s, '90s, and and moving on. So many of these ideas that have transformed people, transformed people's lives, happened in this specific environment. Why? Because we have religious freedom. Period. Right. I come from a country, or like my half of my heritage is from Thailand, mm-hmm. and Thailand is right next to Burma, and Burma became a communist state or 1984 is actually based on the things that happened in Burma and some of the things that he saw, or at least it was an inspiration. And he was an officer, I believe, I think for the, for England. And yeah, just the whole notion of the government not being involved in your religion and your, in in how you worship. Mm -hmm. China has just rounded up all of the Uyghur Muslims. They've just put them in concentration camps because they're causing issues and the states, okay, we don't want to deal with this. No, no religious freedom for these people. Let's just put them in a bunch of concentration camps and not, yeah. and not deal with them. That, that sort of thing, <laughs> that sort of thing doesn't happen in this country. Like people can say there are equivalents. There are no equivalents. There's no concentration camps in the United States. My friends are like, oh yeah, what about the people in prison? Aren't they, aren't they slaves? Okay, man, whatever. You can think what you want, but generally, and I think a lot of people across the world would agree with this statement. Your chances to make it, your chances to be successful, to actually do what you want and follow your dreams, you have a higher chance of doing that in America. Doesn't happen for a lot of people. A lot of people are living in poverty in our country, but generally you have a better shot here. Yeah, I I, I agree. And I am gonna present a very esoteric argument to everything you just said, because it just came to my attention recently. So I'm gonna go there. But with that being said, I'm going to say I'm going to have an unpopular opinion right now that I think some people may have that they don't want to admit to. And, and this is the truth, I, I think. OK, maybe you'll disagree, but I think a lot of people just don't want to work. They just don't want to work hard. And I think I, I may have an immigrant mentality. I came to this country when I was 14. I was severely bullied for my race, ironically. And that's why I laugh at the notion that this country is racist, because I actually experienced extreme racism. Yeah, yeah you did. And so to me, I laugh because I literally, when I left Holland, I was like, oh, thank goodness. I'm leaving that country. I'm coming here, land of opportunity. I'm going to make it and be rich and famous by the time I'm 25. That's what I thought. And so coming here to now see this whole divide and, oh, we're such a racist country. You need to be anti-racist. I'm like, wait, well, what are you guys talking about? It doesn't make any sense. But my point is that I think a lot of people just don't want to work hard. And so this idea of free healthcare and free college and free this and free that, yeah, that sounds really great. That sounds awesome. And I went to college for two years and dropped out to pursue my dance and my music career. And I had to pay that off. And so I don't have any student loans because I know when you file bankruptcy, you still owe that. And I had to file bankruptcy after my divorce. And so I had to pay off my student loans. They were expensive. It sucked. And I remember the day when I paid off my student loans. I'll never forget. It took me forever. I was so grateful and happy. Nobody held a gun to your head when you decide to go into a $100,000 debt for your African studies dance bachelor program or whatever you decided to study. No offense to you. So why should that all of a sudden be dissolved when I had to pay for it? And I was a criminal justice major. 
So I just, I'm sorry. People just don't want to work hard. And it sounds great to have a $2,000 paycheck every month that the government will give you and free healthcare. I just, I think a lot of people just think this utopia that was presented, I think by Bernie Sanders and AOC and all of them, it just sounds really great. We could just be like Denmark and Norway. And I don't want to go too much on a tangent, but I, I did my research on them. Okay, let's look at Denmark and Norway. And they have very different circumstances that are just not comparable to the United States. And so really the agenda is more like Cuba and Venezuela, and it doesn't look very good. And so on the flip side with that argument, I have an esoteric argument, okay? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a little out there, all right? Hope you're ready. So the esoteric argument to all of this is that what if there's a little bit of maybe Trump is deep state, I don't know, but if they want a great divide, what better way than create the right and create the left. You have these spiritual patriots. This is what, you know, I think you came up with that actually. You have these spiritual patriots. You have these social justice warrior where we have this complete divide. We still have kind of a negative energy, right? Going on. The world is divided, but the end goal has always been vaccines. Why? Depopulation. How? Sterilization. When? In 30 years. How long does it take to condition a nation you sent me that video by yuri it takes 30 years and so we will not be the wiser for another 30 years so yeah there's some side effects here and there to some people fainting off the vaccine but for the most part you'll be okay for the most part you'll be fine because it's not until about 30 years 25 to 30 years that you're going to start seeing people that are trying to have children they won't be able to because the vaccine is really for sterilization and so to me, that's what I'm seeing right now. And that's the one thing that's making me look at Trump a little sideways because even his daughter, Ivanka, is posting, oh, the vaccine is safe. And I see Pence, the VP, just took the vaccine. And it's just making me feel like, okay, what was the end goal all along? Vaccines. Why? Depopulation. That's where this all came from. And so I'm like, what better way than to create a diehard divide? I'm on the Trump train. I'm on the Biden train. So now you have these two camps rallying right? And I, I was very much on the Trump train myself, and I could, I could admit that. So you have these two, two trains going, but the end goal was the same, vaccines. You got mission accomplished. So here's the next layer of the theory, which is crazy. And so you have this whole one world order idea, right? The whole, what if, this is just a theory, what if we are designed to be a one world order because we've already been compromised, okay? And Bill and Melinda Gates, some people think that his wife is already gone, and, and I don't know, or whatever. But I heard this theory, this is a little out there, that the Greys are us in the future, and they are basically us with AI technology that's already been developed. And there's a lawsuit actually going on. I forget who's doing it, but the lawsuit is against Google and AI technology, because basically what they're doing, side note, with like social media and AI technology is that they're developing a technology that is basically a, an AI brain that can replicate you. I know that sounds crazy. I have the video, okay? And so if you think of that, if that would be the future and hypothetically that were the grays, and so if we've been compromised, what better way than to depopulate the earth to the most intelligent species that's left over 500 million right and so if we have a one world order that would be the best chance of us being able to defend planet earth if we had an outside attack 
I know that sounds really crazy and out there, but in order to implement this plan, you need everybody to take the vaccine that doesn't get that so they can pretty much not reproduce. I know that sounds really crazy. I don't know if taking any vaccine is immediately going to cause, or if it is going to cause your sterilization. Yeah, there's people that a lot of people it's I know, theory. a lot of people I know had were, were vaccinated and they're able to have kids. I'm not talking about all vaccines. I'm talking about this specific one. I'm not saying the polio and all of that. You know what I mean? I'm talking about this specific one. And again, we're not going to know the effects because again, this would be in, in the future. I, I don't know, but that's the main thing. And so from all the research I've been doing with the vaccines that were given, like the Cardizal vaccine and the trials that were happening for the HPV vaccine, all of that in India, Pakistan, and Africa, there was one case they actually admitted that the vaccine had a component in it that caused sterilization. And it was happening to a specific region that was administered to uh, women in Africa. And I have the study, which is not, this is not a conspiracy theory, this is proof. And this was administered directly by Bill and Melinda Gates. And so I have that in my blog. And so when I went down that rabbit hole and read all of that, I was like, okay, absolutely not. I'm not taking the vaccine. There's just no, there's no way. And so that's what I'm talking about with people are so quick to, oh, you're being selfish. Just take the vaccine. It's safe. It's fine. And I'm like, I don't know. I think it's, I think reason to be cautious is not, I think it's okay. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. So it, it's a theory. Yeah. I think that, that idea that you know, you could depopulate the world and create a one world government to fight an alien enemy. I think that's in reverse. It would be like, they would want to create a fake alien invasion or a fake alien force to unite Perhaps. the world and create a one world government. There's no... Perhaps. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Know. No, that, that's, that's CIA declassified information. There's already documents on that. I believe it's called Project Bluebeam about fake, about fake alien invasions to, to basically trick the masses. When it comes, when it comes to those government declassified docs or what the effects of this COVID vaccine are, are going to be, yeah, I have no idea, but I think that what they're, what ultimately is being aimed for in, in America is just a full on cultural split. Mm -hmm. So well, what America has done and what a lot of countries do is they go into a foreign nation and they destabilize the region. They fund two sides of, uh, they, they fund two opposing forces. And they let the forces clash it out between each other. And then some force, and then some force steps in once the wreckage has been accomplished. So Yuri Bez, Bezmanov on YouTube, he talked about how that's what he did in Bangladesh. They take what is currently fomenting in a culture and a society as issues like mm -hmm. workers' rights and stuff like that. And they gradually start to support it and they let it run its course. And when it, when these types of movements eventually start to create such a shift and break in the culture, both sides get funded and radicalized and eventually there's a complete collapse of that society. And as, and as the society is collapsing, as the society is weakening, the communist country, in this case, it was, it was in Bangladesh, they were able to step in. And I remember Yuri saying all the academics and all the liberals and all the leaders of the workers unions that we used and that we supported to start the revolution, we all got rid of them once the revolution was complete. And I'm sure there's a similar history in, in China with the communist takeover. So I'm sympathetic, of course, to the ideal of communism and socialism that there should be 
equality, but I think even the notion that all men are created equal, that's a lie. All men are not created equal. People are not created equal. <laughs> You're born in differences with, with in IQ automatically right off the bat. People are born, people are born smarter. People are born better looking. People are born with greater physical capacity. People are born with more creativity. People are born. Some people are born with great spiritual abilities. You think that's a quality? Really? So there should be equality of opportunity, but really equality of outcome is unrealistic. And the only way you could get it is by centralized control. And I think that's not a good direction to move in as a society. Now that's just my opinion, but, but as far as the vaccines and all of this is concerned, I think it's ultimately just to further a, a cultural split. As you mentioned, we really are living in two different realities. We are living one half of the country thinks things, one, one thing is happening and the other country thinks as an absolute denial of it. And what is that going to lead to? What do you think? Uh, further prediction of 2021. It depends what happens with the presidency. I think that's really going to determine what happens, honestly. But I think that this time of chaos will pass and this COVID situation is not permanent. I don't, I do not see us wearing masks for another three years. I don't see that happening. And I don't think, I don't think that people are going to die from the vaccine. And if they do, then that will be an awakening for the entire world. If a lot of, if a lot of people do get sick from the vaccine and people do actually start to die, there's going to be a lot of litigation <laughs> and these people, these companies are going to lose a lot of money. So if that ends up happening, I think there's going to be some ramifications that will possibly change the face of medicine in this country. And whether people are going to be able to give birth in 30 years of taking the vaccine, there's, there's an author named Eustace Mullins. Some people write him off as an anti-Semite, but he wrote some books on vaccines and I think it was called like murder by injection was one of them. And that was a very thorough research on a very thorough, very thorough investigation on vaccines. And of course, Robert F. Kennedy is one of my, one of my favorite guys, definitely my favorite liberal. So he's, he's amazing. I, I, I love liberals. You and I are more conservative Two, three, four of my best friends are liberals and we disagree on politics, but we love each other. So I think that's the thing we can see, we can have different opinions and we're always going to have to come to some kind of higher ground or some kind of center ground or some kind of meeting point between the left and the right, between how you see a situation and how someone else sees a situation. And that's always how society has been. People act like this is new, like division between the left and the right, cultural divide. Like you, you think this hasn't happened before? Like there was such thing as the, there was a thing called the Roman empire and it collapsed. That place existed. That was the thing in history. There, yeah. was, there was China before the communist revolution. So, so, so for people to be, the reason for all the hysteria is really social media. In my opinion, like all the news that people used to listen to, it was like you reserved it for six o'clock at the end of the day. But now we're constantly plugged in. Everything's bombastic. There's a bombshell every five minutes, every hour, some crazy thing happens. And I think that it's just got people worked up into right. this, into this craziness, essentially. Right. Like the, the situation with the hatred and just the negativity that's coming from both sides. I think we should really do what we can to provide a spiritual solution for that. Because no matter what, we're going to have people who think differently. People on the left, no matter what, there's going to be people on the right who don't see eye to eye. On the right, no matter what, there's people where there's going to be people who are on the left and you got to work things out. 
So we have to come to solutions and, and a way to work together, really. Okay. So I think that this, this division that is, is growing in this real culture war, the, the social justice warrior stuff and all of that, that, that is really just furthering this cultural divide. And I think that if we don't make an effort to actually talk to the other side, to understand the other side, then we just find ourselves further in our own echo chamber. I talk to people who disagree with me all the time and I give my opinion and they don't disagree with, they don't agree with me, but at least we had communication and that's right. how it is, how it is in parliament. That's how it is in politics. You don't, you're not going to agree with the guy on the other side of the aisle, but you guys have to come to a, to yeah. a solution for everyone because people are different and you have different groups in a society, different races, different religions. Yeah. But ultimately I think that a, a spiritual awakening and a spiritual orientation and really going inward helps us deal with this entire awakening and this entire unfolding and unveiling that's happening because it is an unveiling. How many people today still really think that 9-11 was caused by these eight guys on a plane? Sure. Like all these politicians will get, uh, people will get on TV and they'll act and they'll say it was a, it was a disastrous thing. Like, I bet there's politicians who come up and say that and they just don't even really believe it. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's so much has changed in the last mm -hmm. 25 years when it comes right. to these ideas. And they've really taken this whole red pilling thing has really taken a centerpiece in our culture. Like conspiracy is essentially the heart of culture at this point. And we have different opinions and different takes on it and how we're navigating that is is going to be the duty for all of us moving forward. I know that a lot of us have felt at one point that we want to expose it and that we want to reveal as much as we can. But this talk that I'm having with you is probably like the only conversation that I'll ever really get into this specific stuff in detail, because it's really not where I operate and where mm -hmm. I share from. But nonetheless, it's my real, it's the real me. This is, these are the things that I actually think. I think that yeah, despite the division and despite where the country's going, we really have to just rely, rely on ourselves and rely on each other and ultimately come to be coming from a place of love. It's really that awakening of the heart that is going to allow us on both sides to talk to each other. <laughs> it's going to allow us to try to come up with solutions for the people that feel disenfranchised or the people that are disenfranchised. And whether we're conservative or whether we're Democrat, liberal or, or Republican, I think that tapping into that is really the, the way to move forward. And yeah, that's my take on it. And that's why meditation is important. That's why spiritual awakening and development is important. You're not tapped into the heart and you're not tapped into the field. What you're tapped into ego and you're tapped into limited right. self and what's happening. Oh, the world is ending. Everyone on both sides thinks the world is ending. The yeah. liberals think the world is ending. The conservatives think the world is ending. You know, Biden's going to get in. All the conservatives think the world is ending. Trump's going to get in. All the liberals think the world is ending. The world's not ending. There are people saying that the world is going to end today. It's already 5.23 p.m. Nothing's happened. Nothing's happened. No, I definitely okay? didn't think the world was going to end. If anything, some I think a lot of spiritual people believe we're going to ascend, not the world's going to end. But yeah, I, I totally hear you, and I agree, and I can definitely see that I went through that as well. But here's the irony of it all. That's part of the spiritual journey. And so if you're listening to this, feel, oh, I did that. I judged someone or 
I totally felt like, how can you be a Biden supporter? Maybe you thought, oh, he's part of the pedophilia stuff or the Pizzagate stuff, or you found yourself judging or whatever. I did that. And I could admit to that. I'm the first to admit. And the reason why I'm very blunt with that, and I'm very quick to admit my faults and all of those things, I made a decision a while ago that anytime I put my foot in my mouth, I say something or it comes back to haunt me, I will be the first to admit it. And the reason why is because I think that the more we can just laugh at ourselves and just admit when we, for lack of better words, fuck up or or do something dumb and just say, hey, you know what, whatever, I'm on this journey. Like, I remember when you and I first met, I was talking about Ram Dass and energy and food, and I'm going to be a vegan. And you just laughed at me. Okay, whatever. And I just had to go through that. And so, it, and this is not me saying that veganism is bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying where, wherever you're at in your journey, it's just, it, it is what it is. There's no judgment either way. And so the epiphany I had after watching um, that documentary Samadhi, love that documentary, is that it, everybody's right. Everyone is correct. Wherever you are in your journey, that is where you are and it's okay. And so feeling guilt, shame, fear, those lower frequencies are not going to serve you. If you've been in that situation, that's just where you are. It's fine. You just keep moving forward and it's all good. I love that you shared that and that the common denominator, and I want to move the conversation into that, is, is love. And so can you share with us when you had that epiphany for yourself? So you did the hallucinogens, you did the magic, you've gone through those stages yourself. When did you have the connection? Because I know you've been meditating throughout that whole time because you've been doing that for 10 years. So when did you make the connection for yourself that you were like, okay, the path is Buddhism. This is what I'm going to be doing. This is what I need to focus on. I got into meditation through Buddhism. Buddhism is like a theme throughout the entire, Buddhism was there the whole journey. And how I see Buddhism is probably very different than even how most Buddhists see it. Buddhism to me is awakism. So literally the technology for awakening. There are specific meditation practices. There are specific observances that actually help with the spiritual unfolding, the unfolding of our true nature. And that happens to be quite documented <laughs> in specifically the Buddhist tradition. So the other religions, I have immense respect for them, especially the contemplatives in those traditions, but particularly Buddhism as a religion, as a technology, its aim is awakening. Its aim is enlightenment as opposed to becoming a God or being reborn in heaven or becoming an angel, whatever. The, the aim is really to awaken to the greater reality. And depending on the sect of Buddhism, for example, Theravada Buddhism, its goal is to exit the cycle of existence, to never be reborn again. The goal of Mahayana Buddhism, this is the Buddhism that's popular in China, Korea, and Vietnam. That The aim of that form of Buddhism is to become a very exalted, a very developed being, spiritual being to liberate other beings and help them become awakened. And Vajrayana is like a merge of, that's Tibet Buddhism, that's like a merge of Tantrism with the ideals of Mahayana. So they still have the notion of staying in samsara to help other people awaken to their true nature and eventually leave. Yeah, that was, that's always been a, a consistent through the journey. Like Buddhism and meditation has been there the whole time, but the difference, the difference now is that one, for whatever reason, at some point, 
you just that functioning from ego that functioning from a sense of self that functioning from individual individuality begins to really it just vanishes and essentially there's just the functioning of the field so everything that i just talked about for the last hour politics vaccines division cultural divide all of that i have no attachment to any of that stuff it's that's just what happened that's just what happens to be arising in the reality i exist in that's right. just what happens to be happening in the life of this person's body so right. those specific things are addressed and they're and they're brought up but there's a huge greater reality that a person and awakened like someone who's waking up begins to identify or begins to get in touch with and that begins to take the forefront of their existence like when i talked mm -hmm. about socialism and capitalism it was like yeah which one of these ideas might be better for society moving forward you have a but, different view on it now mm -hmm. yeah exactly it's a very it's yeah. a very different view hey if there was a way to make socialism like how maybe how it is in these other dimensions or other places where there's just endless everything but yeah uh, you, you maybe i'd be for it but that doesn't seem to be how our material dimension works but those beings may also be of different form like i remember when we were listening to far journeys they didn't have to eat or sleep it was right. an energetic yeah. form exactly. it's just a different way of being so it's just different yeah exactly right. but as, as far as buddhism is concerned in the beginning when you start practicing buddhism or any path really there's really a sense of you and the teachings and the source of the teachings being this person like buddha and then the community of the people that are practicing the Buddhist teaching. So in Buddhism, we, people call that the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It's known as the Triple Gem. So every time you bow or pay respect in a monastery or after a meditation session, you bow three times to pay respect to these three these three aspects of Buddhism. So the Buddha is supposed to, the Buddha represents our awakened nature. The Dharma represents the the Dharma is the teachings of this person Buddha, but the teachings are ways to encounter reality or teachings that essentially are supposed to be reality. So for example, some, one of the teachings is the Eightfold Path is right action, intention, mindfulness, right concentration. There's a couple others I can't think of right now. I, I should know the Eightfold Path, I'm a Buddhist teacher. But, um, <laughs> Or I teach and talk about Buddhism all the time. But, we won't judge you for it. <laughs> yeah, so, so a lot of Buddhism is presented as absolute truth, as all the other religions do. But mm -hmm. the difference, I would say, with Buddhism and, and the Eastern or contemplative sects is that they say this can be realized through experience. The, the, the samadhis, the, that's not something you have to have faith in. That's something that you can right. actually experience, experience. Yeah. The formless attainments, the various realms that are existent. Those are not, these are not beliefs. They're actual places that a person mm -hmm. can, can enter and can see. And, and the end goal of Buddhism being enlightenment, that is not a thing that needs to be sure. It takes faith that there's this thing called enlightenment that you can reach it that there's faith in that sense. But it's not the same. It's not the same kind of faith that we see in, in the other religions or, or conviction. I would say, for example, some religions will say, if you don't believe this or if you don't accept this God, you'll burn in in eternal damnation and, and hellfire and all that stuff. So you don't see that. You don't really get that in Buddhism, or in the the Eastern traditions, particularly like Taoism, Hinduism, Vedanta, whatever. But the idea 
that was so attractive to me in the beginning was this notion of direct experience, actually being able to know something by experiencing it. And that drew me to astral projection, like out of body experiences. There was this, I heard this talk and this guy said, you could do this stuff and it's going to cause this vibrational state. And then you're going to separate from your physical body and it's going to be a real thing. And I tried it and it was a real thing. It, literally it happened. And I have no doubt about the existence of the astral body, right? Uh -huh. So the, the thing about religion and about spirituality is so much of it is conceptual. We have two, there's things that we believe that could possibly be true. And then there's things that we actually know by personal mm -hmm. experience are true. So as the path progresses and as things move forward, you find that there are more things from the possibility side that end up in the, in the known category. There's an astral body. There's this thing called astral projection. Might be true. You actually have a few out-of-body experiences or you have a hundred out-of-body experiences. It's not a might be true at that point. You know, like, you're yeah, pretty it becomes fact. Right. It, it becomes fact. It's like as real as looking at your arm. You just get... So that's how realization and enlightenment, it's at, it's at that level of realness. Like when a person awakens and they have, they experience non-duality and the ego just vanishes and it falls through the floor. And suddenly the only thing that's left is present. And it never, it doesn't end for days that this is drastically, irrefutably different than anything you've experienced in your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that to an atheist, you can tell that to a materialist and they'll say, oh, maybe that was just some chemicals in your brain or it was the detox of some specific drug you had taken in your youth, whatever. It doesn't matter what right. other people say. It doesn't, who cares what other people say? The truth it is, even, yeah. you have stepped, you have found yourself, you have stumbled into a completely new way of existing, it's functioning, yeah. and operating. Yeah. So, so Buddhism is, Buddhism and a lot of the contemplative paths are aimed at that. They're aimed at not only mystical experiences and realizations, but a qualitatively different state of being and functioning. So they call it waking up. They call it awakening because that's literally what's happening. You are actually becoming more awake and aware. So the main difference, the main demarcation line is that if I looked at who I was when I was 18, when I was 19, I was meditating, I was, you know, spiritually awakening, I was going through this whole thing, but how much, how present was I actually? Like how awake was my consciousness on, a, on an average day, on a given day? Like on a given day, how many moments are you actually awake? How many moments are you actually conscious, aware and present? Maybe you are right now, cause I'm talking about it. Maybe now you're experiencing attention, you're experiencing presence, but for the entire day before this point, it may not have been there. So when a person wakes up, that consciousness, that presence, that awareness becomes the defining thing in their existence. They, they end, for example, these people who've written books, Ajashanti, Yuji Krishnamurti, the founder of the Dhammakaya temple, they describe actually being in continuous wakefulness, or they describe almost continuous wakefulness. And that is a very different way from how a person has lived and how a person has existed up until that transformation, up until that awakening occurred. So what, so in the beginning you're practicing Buddhism and there's this Buddha statue and there's the teachings and there's all the people meditating. 
And that is entirely separate. That is, you're here, everything's there. It's all separate. There's duality. And then after, I don't know, some people get lucky. It happens in a couple of years or happens in the first six months. But usually it's decades or whatever. After some time, that sense of duality, that sense of ego, that sense of me begins to fade, begins to vanish. And then suddenly the Buddha is within you. You're in the Buddha. The teachings are within you. You're in the teachings. The spiritual community is within you and you're in the spiritual community. So it's very different. You end up talking to a master or you're having a conversation with a person and everything is just a manifestation of the field. Everything is presence. Everything is awake. And there's even stages to that. There's people that, that say the stage of being everything, the stage of everything being within you, experiencing everything as if it is you, like mm -hmm. everything. That is just a stage. And there's further stages beyond that. So there's even levels to wow. this level of this kind of awakening that I'm describing. So, right. but how a person gets to that unfolding, how a person okay. gets to that is the thing. Like when I'm talking about you getting there, right? It's like I'm already misleading. It makes, it makes you feel like there's stuff that, that you can do. You have to do something that you need to become, but it's actually an unbecoming. Yeah. It's an undoing. It's a non-doing. But that tends to be a thing that happens in time. And how this manifests for a lot of people that I've spoken to is they've been doing meditation for a while. And at some point they get this awakened, they have awake, they have awakened consciousness, like what you experienced when you were watching Samadhi and they initially get a flash of it. Like it was, they had it for a couple hours or it happened for a day or it happened for a week. They were just in this kind of egolessness and just a lot of presence and awakened consciousness, a shift has happened. And for whatever reason, ego comes back to the forefront or me comes back to the forefront. And that awakened nature, that deeper aspect of ourself is, is interpreted as an experience. Uh -huh. It's interpreted as something that happened, not as something that you are. And so that's the difference between there's certain insights and certain understandings that mature when this presence and when this awakening is more prevalent. But when it initially happened for me, for example, I totally thought it was an experience. And as soon as, and as soon as ego returned, self rearose, I was horribly sad and depressed because it was like for 10 days when it, when it had first happened, suddenly I was just awake. It was like, it's imagine your whole life, you're dreaming and you're not aware. And then suddenly you step off a plane and boom, it's like waking up from a dream. You're like, consciousness just illuminates and you're one with everything for a week. It wasn't like it happened in a meditation. It like, it didn't oh, stop. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that ends the consciousness reverts or whatever ego self rearises or the perception of it at least. Uh -huh. And that becomes the forefront of your experience and you see that period of awakening as an experience. And this was my, this is the insight I gained as this had happened over time is that when we look at a lotus or when we look at a flower, the, to the petal, that stem of the lotus is not a state. It's not something that comes and goes. It's just a deeper aspect of the flower. Mm -hmm. So this awakened consciousness or that thing you experienced or that awakening that you experienced when you were watching Samadhi and there was suddenly no duality, 
that's actually just a deeper, a deeper aspect of mine, a deeper aspect of our nature. They just say usually ego and obscurations and the things that fill up our, our mind and, and attention cover that up. Mm-hmm. So one word, awakening is not called gaining. And awakening is usually described as an unfolding. What's happening is more of the essential nature, more of your true mind, more of what you are begins to, from a deeper level, begins to manifest. And that begins to take the forefront. So it's not that you actually gain, it's, it's difficult to describe this in words, but it's not like you actually gain some outside presence and then you have it. What's happening is that your mind at its deeper level and its more essential fundamental levels is already present. <laughs> What's happening is that the level, like where your perception is occurring is initially here, like at the surface where there's not much presence. And then as unfolding happens and as obscurations and karma is cleared, more of that essential nature arises and is defined with presence. It literally is presence. Yeah, like in the beginning, when you practice Buddhism, when you practice anything, you're practicing, you're doing something. Like you're being mindful. You're directing your attention at the meditation object. There's you doing a thing. So you're practicing it. It's an activity. It's an action. So at some point, you shift from activity to essence. You go from presence being something that you practice to presence being something that you are. Are. Yeah. That's the main difference. Once, once you are the thing that you've been practicing, it's essentially like you can, that's just, that's when the whole saying of nothing to do, going nowhere, nothing to gain, the things that Eckhart Tolle and other teachers have said starts to make, it starts to make sense. Because nobody. Yeah. yeah, because this whole time you've been identifying with the story and it's like identifying with the ocean, like with, with a drop of water, mm-hmm. but really the total nature is actually the whole body of water. It's the, it's the entire ocean. So we take the drop and we say, this is what we are. This is all I am, blah, blah, blah. But the essential nature is actually infinite. So mm-hmm. awakening is awakening to that. The more awakened a person is, the more in touch, the more they are the ocean. The less awakened a person is, the more they are the drop. Drop. That's a quote right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good quote, right? It's a great quote. Yeah. See, that's how my brain works. <laughs> Ooh, quote. So, so, um, wow. That's that's a fantastic breakdown. And as you were speaking, I'm taking all of this in, and it's just, it's so interesting because so many of the things that I've been writing about, I didn't even know what I was writing about. And now I'm listening to my own lyrics and my own lyrics have different meanings. For example, like one of my songs, I'm like, we're the sun, we're the moon, we're the ocean, we're the sea. I'm talking about we're all of these things. We are one. And I'm just like, I remember when I wrote those lyrics, I did not even mean it from that perspective. And so it's just interesting. And then I have another song talking about Nirvana. And I'm talking about my third eye is blind and my thoughts go on and on. I'm just trying to get to Nirvana. My eyes are wide shut. Like those were the type of lyrics I was writing about. And I, and I didn't even really know where they were coming from. And so listening to my own lyrics now, I'm just like, wow, I was lost seeking and searching for something that I didn't even know was right here within me. It's very interesting. So it's very fascinating. So those listening that are on this journey, it is a journey for sure. Yeah, just got to enjoy where you're at. Because I think... What happens a lot in spirituality, at least from my experience, is that we're always looking for the next thing. 
And I feel like that was where I was for a minute. Luckily, not for very long. I feel like I've been very much on an accelerated journey. <laughs> like I, I get bored very easily, very quickly. So I'm like, okay, next thing, next thing, next thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? How people can recognize if they are chasing spirituality? Because I think that's something that can be a little dangerous. So we don't fall into the trap of chasing it and just becoming it, like you said. Yeah, I think that chasing has its place, especially in the beginning. I, as much as I could, as much as I could tell you not to do that. And as much as people told me not to do that, that's just what happens. Yeah. So many people told me from the start, oh, don't use effort. Don't push, don't force, don't control. And like for five years, that's all I did. When meditating? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When when meditating outside of meditation, you know, you, five years. Yeah. There's a part of the journey where we're exploring, where we're trying, where we're attempting to learn more, we're attempting to expand our horizons and expand our understandings. And this is all happening at the conceptual level. So even if the concepts are true in reality, we're experiencing them as concepts, as ideas. Interesting. And that's fine, right? It's good to broaden our mind. It's good to be open to possibilities, but what really will define you and what has defined all any person on the spiritual journey is what they know by experience, mm. not, not conceptually. So in the beginning, stillness is a concept. In the, in, in the beginning, stillness is an idea. At some point, stillness and beingness becomes a reality or it's discovered as a reality. Mm-hmm. So the spiritual search is a search of discovery. So there are many different facets and many different aspects of reality and there's so many different realms and dimensions. And the reason that some teachers and some traditions urge you not to focus so much on all of that is because you can even be, you can be highly psychically developed and your entire attention is on objects. Your entire attention is on the various things in the mind. And there's not actually, there's not actually awakening that has, that right. has happened. Yeah, you can yeah. be a very psychically developed person and still be like a really angry, hateful person. Such a good know? point. One, you need to, we have to, discuss what there is because there are many different there's so different paths have different goals and the various orders and the various schools some of them they often see the end goals of other paths as incomplete so a lot of it is really up for grabs we have to experience it you know ourselves and really discover what's true and and what isn't by our our own experiences and that could take that could take years that could take a lifetime but The point is, if we're addressing presence, if we're addressing that awakened non-dual awareness, that opens up by what I call non-action or non-doing. So when you practice meditation and you sit down and you use a specific technique, there's really a sense that you're directing your consciousness at the technique. There's dualism immediately, which Mm -hmm. is fine. But what can help get into help a person relax into non-dualism into unity or into non-separation is really just having presence and relaxation and to the best of your and to the best of your ability just getting out of the way like the 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 unity or the union or the buddha nature or whatever it is that you're after it's not something that you get it's something that you are but that needs to be discovered. That needs to unfold. Like right now, 
you're at one level of perception, you can't see it. But mm-hmm. as that non-doing, as you, as more of that happens, as more of that essential awareness is in your meditation, at some point it begins to take predominance. So like right now, when you practice meditation, if you're a beginner, you'll like, you'll have mindfulness of the object or you'll have your attention on the breath or you're at the center and you're there for, I don't know, a few seconds and then your mind's off somewhere else. And you got to come back and you're there for another few seconds and then your mind's off somewhere else again. And you, and the whole hour is just returning to having awareness. It's returning to being mindful. So this is a process. Um, this takes time. And at some point in that unfolding, at some point in that settling, and presence is recognized, like a presence is, awareness itself is recognized. Maybe you're recognizing it right now. Like I'm saying the word awareness, I'm saying, are you paying attention? That awareness that just turned on, that is exactly what you're cultivating in meditation, whether you have an object or not, and make sure there's relaxation involved. That's so... If we're meditating, we have presence, we're relaxing. At some point, that begins to become the predominance, the predominant thing in the meditation. And there's not much of a sense of doing it at all. Mm-hmm. It's just what... So you're, just, you become it, is what you're yeah, saying. You, you, you are it. You are yeah. it. You just don't know it yet. And the only way to discover it is to relax. <laughs> it's to relax and be present. So a great teacher gave me that advice when I just started. It took me six years to get it. Wow. It just didn't, it just didn't make sense. I was like, Oh, I'm just going to keep trying. I'm just going to keep pushing the intending. The forcing is the very thing that, uh, that is in the way of the stillness and presence, the, wow. the ego, the you that has been in control your whole life. That is the obstacle to oneness. If there's no self, there's only oneness. If there's no right. self, there's only phenomenon. So the you, right is exactly what you need to, is exactly what gets out of the way when you meditate. And as, and as it, as self or perception of self and ego takes the background and this presence begins to take the foreground in your meditation practice, eventually that begins to manifest in your life outside of the meditation, outside, off of the cushion. And you have more awareness, you have more wakefulness. And at some point there's no reversion. Like you don't go back. That's the thing about this whole thing. Like, uh, this is the thing about spirituality. Like when it really gets to, to, to this specific level, like Shuang, there's a, a Chinese philosopher called Shuang, Shuangzi, and he said that no self is true self and the greatest man is nobody. So there's really a vanishing that begins to happen as a result of your practice. And that vanishing, that perception of truth begins to cause some kind of changes in your psychology and in your body. And it's like the organism is dealing with touching reality exactly as it is. Mm -hmm. And it's causing this kind of dysfunction. It's causing this massive change. And that change is perceived as a dark night of the soul. When the dark, when the dark night and this kind of period of, it feels like, like annihilation is happening. It feels like it could feel like you're losing yourself and like, the ground has fallen underneath you and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. When you, when that is happening, like that could last for a while. At the end of the dark, <laughs> on the other side of that kind of abyss, that awakened consciousness really becomes, begins to come to fruition and reveal itself even more. That doesn't happen for everyone. I, I, I don't know if the, if that kind of 
period of trial or dark night is a thing for everyone, but I know a few people that have been through that sort of thing. Like the awakening happens, that presence manifests, and then suddenly like these psychological issues really start to come up and dealing with those psychological issues and the issues in your life that need to get worked out and the issues yeah. in yourself, that's a part of the whole journey. So. Yeah, I I can identify with that. I I had an acid trip. It was like oh, over a year ago, and uh, it's funny because it goes back to when we we're talking about influences and whatnot. And I experienced what I now think would be called satori, and so yeah. I had this really intense feeling of just of that. And so for those of you who don't know what that means, it's just this really intense feeling of presence, but it's different than samadhi. It's just. It's a different feeling, but I was on acid at the time. And so I just had this really intense feeling and I was looking at a candle and it was really extreme. And then another part of the acid trip, I remember just constantly having this thought, which it didn't feel like my own, which now in hindsight, I don't think it was, that everything was linear, which doesn't even make sense now because no, I don't believe that at all. But I kept having that thought and I felt like it was being fed to me because I'm like, no, I'm seeing colors and I'm on acid and everything's like beautiful and amazing. But I kept hearing this dark voice saying, no, everything is linear. Everything is linear. And I'm like, what? No, this is beautiful. Like I'm exploring the universe and this is amazing. But I just kept hearing this little dark thought telling me like, no, everything is linear. Like you should think this way. And this was, it was like a little over a year ago. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. The experiences that we have, it's crazy. Yeah. I don't know. The way I look at it now, because I don't even know if it constitutes as a dark night of the soul, I'm not sure, but I know when I had my awakening to what's going on in 2020, I went through a two week period of grieving where once I discovered like all of the people I looked up to in the music industry, because my goal always was I want a Grammy. There's certain people I wanted to work with. When you think about the things they may have had to do to get there. It just makes you feel like, why am I even doing this as an artist? And so I went through that of grieving of just, okay, if I want to have influence or if I want to make music, I may have to make unpopular choices and I may not be able to win a Grammy or I may not be able to do those certain things. Am I willing to walk away from that? And so I feel like the dark night of the soul may look different for many people. You know what I mean? I don't know if you agree with me with on yeah, that. And so I think there's also different stages of the dark night of the soul, depending yeah. on where you're unfolding and your awakening is. And so I went through different versions of that. And so even watching um, the documentary, I remember there were parts of it where it's almost like I felt the TV was talking to me directly. Because part of the documentary is saying, even you watching this documentary, there's a reason you're watching it right now. You've attracted it into your life. And then part of the documentary was the music will just stop and say, stop, be present right now. I'm like, oh my God, this is freaking me out. You don't realize, oh, it's the, the document. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. There's a part one and a part two. It's just, it's such a mind fuck because it's, then it starts talking about once you think you've awakened and you think that's it, then you really know you're still asleep because mm -hmm. there's still more unfolding to do. That's your ego thinking you've arrived. And that's actually even more dangerous because then you're judging more people. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then you got to be careful. You don't want to be trapped in a nightmare because then you can get stuck at a place where you are conscious of the fact that you are still asleep, yet more awake than others. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure.
So that's a trippy feeling. And so there's many times I feel that way now. That's where my conscious is now. And so I'm on my phone and I live alone. And so I'll be on my phone sometimes and I'm like scrolling and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm doing a habitual habit. And I'm like, why am I doing this? This is stupid. And I'm conscious of it. And I'm like, wow, I'm totally just plugged in. And I'm aware of the fact that I'm doing it. And I'm just like, put your phone down. Like you're just totally on autopilot. And so I'm, I'm more aware of my habits and my actions now than I've ever been. And it's mm -hmm. such a weird feeling. And so I'm catching myself so much every day and it almost feels like a nightmare. And it's, I can't help myself sometimes. And I'm like, what is going on? It's, I, I, it's, I can't stop myself. Wow. That's what that documentary is talking about. I'm aware that I'm asleep sometimes, but I just can't stop myself sometimes, or I have to like really, okay, discipline myself. It's crazy to be aware of your own habits. Did you experience that at all in your own unfolding? And if so, how were you able to break that cycle? Or did you just completely skip that and go straight to like the next level? Because I'm having trouble with that in my own unfolding. So I would love to get any advice or what you have to share on that because it's trippy and well, I don't want to stay stuck here. Well, this, this is the thing for, yeah, when it had happened, when I, when the first glimpses of that arose a few years back, it was perceived as an experience. So okay. when it happened, when the first blast of awakened consciousness or awareness had arisen and come to the forefront. It lasted, it lasted 10 days and then it vanished for two years. Two and years. Then, yeah. Two years. Wow. Two years, like an entire two years passed without that. So imagine this, you have just so, for so long, you're this spiritual person on this journey. Yeah. You know, you're a person, you're a person. That's what you are. And suddenly you step off a plane and you're not a person anymore. There's no Ryan who's trying to become happy. There's no Ryan experiencing bliss. There's only bliss and there's only happiness and there's no time at all for 10 days. When that blasted my whole idea of spirituality and yeah. And then for so long, I was just, just like trying to get back there, just trying and just being so, I was so distraught. I was like depressed for a week or something after the fact, after the ego revert, reverted back. But uh, this is the thing, like there's a Zen quote, I think that says awakening can happen in an instant, but it takes time for the habit patterns in the mind to transform. Yeah. So you'll, so you'll see yourself doing things that are not good for you, mm -hmm. even in a place of presence, but mm -hmm. the presence is not strong enough to the point that that specific habit pattern becomes unbound or yes. that specific negative thing. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there's like I described, there's like this kind of bar. So you got, you have 20, 20% presence now, 20% non-dual essential nature, 20% yeah. awakened consciousness. It's not enough to blast out some of these habits, habits that you have because those are, are hardwired in the brain. Yeah. They're hardwired in your brain. Exactly. They're hardwired in your brain. A lot of them are even karmic. Like it's beyond the brain. It's like actually a part of your soul's path It's a part of what, what you're dealt with, you know, and, and there are awakened teachers, like what I consider guys who were awakened teachers that were awakened who, who died of alcoholism at 49 because they drank themselves to death and they had liver failure. So even a guy with a freaking 80% awakening, it wasn't strong enough to blow out that specific karmic issue, that specific obstacle. Yeah, wow. exactly. 
but generally what happens is when you start to have a lot of awaken when you start to have a lot of awareness a lot of presence that it's like you can find yourself in a situation reacting and that you're reacting mm-hmm. but you don't really believe it anymore <laughs> it's so it's so crazy it's you're like you're in it like your voice is being raised but at the same time you're like oh shit like this is a program and i'm, I'm watching it happen whereas if you had more of the presence and it was much stronger like maybe you wouldn't even you wouldn't even react and think that you're and know right. that you're just playing the part but the other the inverse applies too you could be totally aware and just play the part because that's what needs to be done in that moment in time you just know like this person i need to pretend to be angry and actually get worked up in order to deliver the message that they need to hear so sometimes like things that are arising in the moment things that are arising from the ground things that are arising from that transcendent dimension they don't make sense on our material dimension it doesn't make sense that, that the teacher said that but from that place of of awakening from that place of being established in the ground in that buddha nature and it it does it makes sense it was the exact thing that person needed to hear and it was the exact thing that needed to happen at that time and some people call that right action so yeah, it varies, but when the presence is, I don't want to say strong enough, but when it's just prevalent enough, when it's so, when it's so predominant, even if the habit patterns are still there, they don't have nearly as much of a hold on you. Like your chance of not giving in is yeah. much, much higher. Right. Yeah. Because you're aware now and then willpower can come in and yeah, you can make better choices. Because so much of that stuff is automatic. So much right. of it is just, is just a function of being, of being unconscious. Yeah. It's just a function of not having awareness. Like mm-hmm. someone says something to you and you get offended and you react and you say something right. that you don't really mean. And then after the emotions subside, you come back and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. I was like, that was way out of line. I'm so sorry. That all happens because as soon as you're triggered, boom, that's what takes the predominance in your consciousness. That's what the forefront is. The emotion is the forefront and the reaction is the forefront. Mm-hmm. But when you're very awake, when you're very present, even if that reaction is coming up, it doesn't take the forefront. So that's why a reaction could come up, like something could come up and then immediately, boom, it just dissolves. Yeah. Yeah. This is the interesting thing for me, where I'm at in my journey now, when it comes to reacting with other people, I found that I've had a pretty decent handle on that. It's more so with myself keeping promises to myself, breaking habits with myself. And I think a lot of people that are listening to this may have similar issues. I think people in general, keeping habits and promises to yourself, like, oh, I'm going to work out. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to journal or, oh, I'm going to make sure that I make my bed in the morning or whatever, just keeping those small promises. And so what has really helped me, and then I would love for you to share some advice uh, as well, before we wrap up this episode, start with really small promises. And don't overshoot because that's the mistake I've made. And Mm. when I overshoot and I don't hit it, then I beat myself up and then the guilt takes over. And then those little promises that I did keep, I don't even celebrate those little successes. And I'm a big believer of the law of attraction. And so if you're in that feeling of like guilt or I didn't hit my goal, you're just attracting more things to continue to feel that way. 
uh, a tool that I use that we both learned from a consciousness course that we took was a daily 10. So just yeah. writing the 10 things you need to do every single day. And so until it becomes a habit where I just don't have to think about it, it's going to be on my list. And so that's the way I've been able to implement new habits. And so one of the habits that I just really solidified is journaling, which I was pretty consistent with, but I didn't do it every day. And I found that when I started to journal, my life changed drastically. That's really helped me. So I'm curious to, to hear your perspective on what has helped you. I think that when it comes to meditation, a lot of us can get down on ourselves for maybe you listen to someone like me and you're like, oh man, this guy's like so awakened. Like people call me a veteran, a meditation <laughs> veteran. I've I mean, 10 been, years is a long I've time. introduced as a meditation veteran. I'm like, it's just hilarious because I'm like 28. Totally. Yeah, but it's a third of your life. It's pretty this, significant. This body is particularly young. So <laughs> it's interesting to be called that. But yeah, people can look at me or can look at people way ahead of me. Ajashanti and... Buddha and just so many masters and really feel like, wow, that gap is so huge. Mm -hmm. It's like a, it's like an ocean that I need to cross to right. get there. And that's not true. The ocean that you think you need to cross is your conceptual mind, your ego, the you, the thing that you're operating from, that is what's in the way. So this whole process of meditation is an unfolding. If you see it as a process of building, if you see it as a process of accumulation, that can work against you because you're always in like getting more, learning more, becoming more, 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 and it can end up just making your ego bigger. But if you're unfolding, if you're just being, if you're resting in meditation, if you're just relaxing, if you're letting go, if you're just observing, all of that eventually have that nature, that essential nature begin to arise, that presence begin to, be, to unfold and really become more manifest and more prevalent in your life. And yeah, it's easy to get down on ourselves, but the thing to consider too is I, I didn't do, I didn't start doing this yesterday. I didn't start last week. <laughs> yeah. A lot of these people that you look up to, that have these books, that have millions of followers, they didn't start yesterday. Like. They've been doing this for years. I've been doing this for, a, this body has been doing this specific thing for a decade. It's, yeah, of course, at some point there's some fruition. Right. <laughs> right? And, effect, right. Yeah. And then these other people that I learned from my mentors, they med they meditated for 30,000 hours, 30,000 hours. Like no wonder that's the state that they exist and function in. So I think we have, sometimes we can have these big expectations, these huge standards that just don't even apply to you. They don't. What's the point of you comparing yourself to someone who's meditated for 30,000 hours or for someone who's meditated for 7,000 hours? You can't compare yourself. You're not in the same league. You're not even in the same game and that's okay. You have to realize that like in the relative dimension, there's stuff that happens in time and space. In the ultimate dimension, in the absolute reality, nothing, there's nothing going on. Nothing's happening. Everything just is. But there, it, it takes time to actually, it seems to take time and understanding for that to begin to unfold, for that to begin to settle in your life, for that transcendent dimension to become your reality. Because you've been functioning from ego and from self for your entire life. So what, suddenly you're just going to start meditating for a year or for a summer and then that's just going to disappear. Yeah. If you're lucky, I wasn't that lucky. 
No one I know was that lucky. Mm-hmm. Eckhart Tolle was that lucky. He, he, he was suicidal and then it just happened. He was lucky, definitely lucky. But generally, this stuff takes time. And even once you've become a very present, awakened individual, there's so many traps to watch out for. There's so many mistakes that you can make. There's so many abuses of power, really, that that you can that can happen. You know, you become a spiritual teacher. You're a meditation. You're you teach meditation to Misha. You do this podcast. One day, you could be in a position where you're hosting retreats. And people are coming to you for answers and they're asking you, how do I get out of duality? And at that point, you have a whole new set of responsibilities on your plate. And a lot of people, a few people don't handle those responsibilities very well. So even there's all, there's levels to all of it. But the main point I want to drive to everyone is, you know, don't feel bad about where you are and about what you are and about who you are, who you are and what you are and where you are is, is totally fine. And where you are now, that through the lens of duality, that through the lens of a personality. But eventually at some point when that awakening happens and that true nature unfolds, you're able to smile at your life and smile at the things that you went through and the things that that you did and even cry (laughs) at the life that you had because it's beautiful. Even though you were asleep the whole time, it was beautiful. Even though you weren't aware for most of it, it was a really, the ups and downs were beautiful. So it's okay. It's fine to be exactly where you are. It's fine to be who you are. It's fine to be what you are. When you meditate, just be present and relax. Just have mindfulness and relaxation and just be in the unfolding. This whole thing is the unfolding of your life. It's the unfolding of reality. It's the unfolding of phenomena and you're not separate from that. And what will define you as a spiritual being is when that becomes when you know that so deeply it's in your bones and you live it you actually live it it's not a concept you live it it is it becomes it is what you are and you manifest that that manifests through you mm-hmm. so it's a long for some people it's a short ride <laughs> you just pick up a book and suddenly there's that's it But for a lot of us, it takes time. And for a lot of us, there's a process in getting out of the way. There's a process in having that presence come to the forefront because your ego, yourself, just keeps trying to hold on. Can't let go. I tell you to sit down and be like, just don't, just don't do. Just watch. And you can't. You don't know how to not do. You don't know how to be. You don't know how to relax. You don't know how to give up. You don't know how to let go. Because your whole life, You've done the exact opposite. So it's normal. It's going to take time. It may take me a hundred times to tell you to relax and let go and to just be. And you don't get it. But on the hundredth and oneth time, you get it. And when you get it, that's all it takes. Right. You you will carry that for the rest of your life and the rest of your unfoldment. And the rest of your unfoldment. Amazing. Any last words of wisdom or... Anything that resonated most recently that you could share with us before we wrap up? Yeah, I would say on a final note for more perspective and understanding is like when the presence and when the awakened awareness manifests like it did for you in that, in that movie Samadhi, it can come, it can happen anytime, like on meditation, outside of meditation, with a meditation object at the center of the body or without one, it can just happen. And when it happens, it's like a flash. And then afterwards, 
it passes and see it as an experience and you see it as, oh, this incredible thing happened and there was no self and other and I was him and he was me and it was, it was all one, it was all none. You'll say that, you'll say that sort of thing. And you don't know when the next like strong burst of that or major unfoldment of that is going to happen. And it just takes, yeah, just stay with it. Just stay with the practice, keep being present, keep relaxing, keep letting go, keep meditating, keep working on yourself, work on your problems, don't ignore them. But the psychological issues and the challenges that we have internally, they're a part of the path. They're not separate from the path. They are the path. Yeah, just take note of that and always continue no matter what happens, because if I had given up five years ago, or if I'd given up four years ago, or if I'd given up after three years, then I wouldn't be able to speak the way that I do and share what I'm able to share. So see it as like a lifelong thing. Your aware, awareness itself, that presence itself is, is our essential nature. And it has its own process. And as much as you want to control it, as much as you want to make it happen now, as much as you want to be enlightened tomorrow, <laughs> that's just the mind. That's just the ego. And the sooner you let that go, the sooner that gets out of the way, the sooner you stop trying, the sooner you let go of time, form, space, beliefs, the sooner you let go of yourself, the quicker that presence and the quicker that awakened nature begins to manifest. But I can tell you to let go. I can tell you to be, I can tell you to just observe. And it may take you five years to get it. So it just depends on, on who you are and where you're at. But it's like a knot and it, it unties. We can create the right circumstances, the right conditions for the flower to grow right sunlight, soil, amount of water, but the flower sprouts on its own time. Mm. Yeah, it, it bears fruit in its own time. So all we can do is keep practicing, keep learning, keep listening, keep watching, keep observing, keep developing ourselves and being better. And at the same time, just being don't forget to take care of the vessel as well. <laughs> Don't neglect that. Because I've yeah. definitely found myself doing that of just being so consumed with uh, spiritual well-being. We, we neglect our bodies. So definitely take care of the body as well. I appreciate you coming on to the podcast. I appreciate you so much. And uh, make sure you check out uh, his podcast. You can follow his journey on Instagram. So that's ryan.jburton. And then let everybody know how they can best support you as far as your coaching and things like that. And just what you offer one more time. I know it's on your website, but just what you specialize in as far as meditation, your ideal client, basically. Yeah, I, I work with a lot of beginners. I'm a meditation coach for a company and also for a school, but I help beginners. I'm able to really help you get started in your meditation practice because I spent a lot of time in that part of the journey where you're just like in the trenches and it's just so hard. I, I spent so many years in that. So I'm really able to, to speak to beginners and help you guys help you and ladies, of course, <laughs> get to further unfoldment and to the point where meditation becomes easy. Because there's a road, 
in a lot of cases to the point where it becomes easy at, at first it's, it's hard for most people. And, but of course the favorite students are the people who are intermediate and they've done it for a while and they have some roadblock and I help knock out that one, that, that one roadblock and then boom, they're just off to the races. I love speaking with those people as well. So if you're, whether you're a beginner or you're an intermediate, whether you're new or you've been doing this for a while, I'm sure that what I'm able to share could help you in that unfolding and overcome some of the obstacles that you may be facing. So I do personal meditation coaching and you can find me on my website, ryanjburn.com. Just click the services tab and you can book a free 15 minute call with me and we'll talk, get to know each other, see where you're at, how your practice is unfolding. And if I'm able to help, then by all means we can proceed and you know, start to nurture that, that relationship. Amazing. It's been a pleasure getting to know you on a even just deeper level, just hearing yeah. more stories and more perspectives and just talking about so many different topics. So those listening, if you haven't heard part one, definitely go back and listen to part one, but it's just, it's really cool to go from magic to Buddhism, to politics, to aliens, to what have we yeah. covered? Vaccines, I've like never, we just went everywhere. <laughs> I have never done that before. So I loved, I loved this episode to me. A lot of the times when I talk on interviews, it's like very much in, like in one specific area or dimension. And in this episode, I really got to be myself. So if people don't like it, if people disagree with me, people hate me for it, that's fine. But those are all the things that I really think. And those are all the experiences that I've really had. And there's beauty and, and, and truth in that. I appreciate Absolutely. you asking yeah. all those questions. This, this is probably the only episode I've ever interviewed. Well, then ever it's, done. Then it's yeah, a Vibe so. Talk Awaken exclusive of you sharing all of those uh, perspectives. And I appreciate that. And honestly, if anyone hates you or any of those uh, emotions, then that's just a trigger and coming from judgment. And so we yeah. don't take that personally. It's all good. But yeah, but thank you. I appreciate you. And I'm sure I'm going to have you back on here again to get your perspective on where things are in 2021, because I'm curious to see what will happen with the election and who will get inaugurated and just... Right. The unfolding of our reality in this dimension. But it's yeah, been interesting. If you ever have a panel panel of, of meditation people or people that are in the red pill community and meditation people, even some of the people in the group that are Christians and of different faiths, yeah, I would love to to join and talk with them. That would be a super cool. That's episode. a great idea. I love it. There you go. Perfect. Do even consider that. So that's a great idea. I'm going to go ahead and put that in the suggestion box. And for those of you listening that may feel some anxiety with what's going on and what, what's going to happen in 2021 is if you do start to look at this as a movie and you're playing your part and your role, then you can sit back in and enjoy the show in essence. And so if you look at it like that, you can take comfort in knowing that if, as long as you're taking care of yourself and you're working on your self-care and your practice, you're going to be okay because you're subscribing to the reality that's good for you and you're coming from love and you're taking care of yourself, then you're going to be fine no matter what. And so having that experience and not just from an intellectual level of knowing that I've always been here and that remembering, I think once you experience that and you don't just know it, there's almost a feeling of like relief of, oh, it's going to be fine. We're going to be fine. I encourage you if you haven't experienced that, or if you're curious, like you said before, just keep going, keep chipping away, just stay consistent with it. Hey everyone, just be the love, just be it and <laughs> so meditate in it, share it with, with as much, as many people as you can. And that 
that that love that is there and that you're sharing and that you're expressing it is raising the vibration it is changing things a lot of things in this world happen a lot of what's happening is happening at unseen levels and we're getting like the, the end of the stick that is called the physical dimension but that mm. that love is really able to transcend time and space and it has such a profound effect you, you don't really know now but when you start to have some incredible experiences or even when you die and you look back on your life you're going to look back on on that love that you gave and that love that you received and that love that you shared is one of the most important aspects of your entire incarnation so yeah just honor that let that love be your guiding light to the end of this year into 2021 so i love that awesome thank you so much and everyone till next episode if you are listening and you are interested in a meditation coaching session with Ryan, please take a screenshot of this episode and tag Vibe Talk Awaken as well as Ryan.jburton. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you thought, if this uh, episode brought you any value, your takeaways, and we will send you a free session so you can experience working with him firsthand. Um, I know whenever he has done a guided meditation, I feel more relaxed, I feel more present, more centered. Um, I know that you know whenever I'm around him, he pushes me to look at all angles and just question things and that in turn has elevated my own consciousness and i'm a big believer that you know whoever you surround yourself with um you really that's who you become and so i feel very fortunate to have him as a, as a close friend and so thank you guys for listening i appreciate you all sending you so much love and until next time mm -hmm.